Hello and welcome to the History of Ancient Greece. This is Jonathan Adley from the History of the Copts podcast. The Copts are the native inhabitants of Egypt, and my podcast tells their story from the Romans and Cleopatra to modern times. The Church of Alexandria played a major part in the establishment for many of the forming blocks of historical Christianity. This carried forward under the Caliphate, where the dynamic between Islam and Christianity tells a fascinating story that outshines and at times runs counter to the more famous Crusades. Mongols, Mamluks, Crusaders, and even Napoleon will all make a play for the lands of the Nile. The lands where Alexander entered a man and left a god. Thank you for your time, and please enjoy this episode from the history of ancient Greece. Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. Episode 91, Attrition and Plague. On the last two episodes, we discussed the events that ultimately led to Sparta and the Peloponnesian League severing the Thirty Years' Peace Treaty and declaring war on Athens in the summer of 432 BC. As a result, throughout the winter of 432-431 BC, both sides prepared themselves for war the following campaign season. War hostilities officially began in March 431 BC, though it wasn't launched by a Spartan attack on Attica, but by Thebes, whose home region of Boeotia shared a long border with the Athenians. For centuries, Thebes had quarreled with their Athenian neighbors to the south, as Athens at every step had resisted Theban attempts to unify and dominate all of Boeotia. In fact, during the First Peloponnesian War, which we described in episode 42, the democratic Athenians had defeated the oligarchic Thebans in battle, and afterwards established democratic governments in most of the Boeotian towns, which of course maintained close relations to Athens. Another important Boeotian city that had been an ally of Athens since the 6th century BC was Plataea, which occupied a strategic position less than 8 miles from Thebes, and immediately flanked the best roads from Thebes to Athens. In Athenian hands, Plataea could serve as a base for attacks on Thebes and as a threat to any Theban army attempting to enter Attica. Additionally, Plataea similarly flanked the only road connecting Thebes with Megara that didn't pass through Athenian territory. And so with Plataea in Athenian control, any collaboration between Boeotia and the rest of their southern allies in the Peloponnesian League would be hindered. With this in mind, on the eve of war, the Thebans decided to attack and take the city of Plataea unexpectedly with the goal of forcing them to join the Boeotian League. They probably did this because they knew that there was going to be a war, and so they wanted to gain the strategic advantage of having Plataea in their control from the outset. Or maybe they were afraid that there would not be a war, 
and they were eager for there to be one, so they took actions to make sure of it. Regardless, on one cloudy evening in March 431 BC, with the Athenians focusing their attention southwards in anticipation of a Peloponnesian-led invasion of Attica, a small force of 300 Thebans marched on Plataea under the cloud of darkness. They were led by Pythangolos and Diamporos, who were their Boatarkoi, or chief magistrates of the Boeotian League. This was not done in complete secret, though, as when they arrived at Plataea, the gates of the city were opened to them by Naclades and other pro-oligarchic and pro-Theban Plataeans. These traitorous Plataeans believed, rightfully, that their fellow citizens would fight back once they learned of the oligarchic coup, and so once the city was seized and the Theban soldiers had taken up their positions in the Agora, they wanted them to go around to all of the homes and kill all of their democratic enemies in the city. The Thebans, though, preferred Plataea to be under a friendly, oligarchic government, allied to Thebes, rather than by one either decimated by executions or burdened with exiles plotting their revenge. And so the Thebans ignored this request, choosing not to harm the citizen body, and invited them, under their newly imposed oligarchic government, to join the Boeotian League. But the traitors Plataeans had been right because as soon as the shock of the coup had worn off, and they realized that only 300 Thebans were in their city, they immediately began to mount a resistance. They first dug through the common walls of their compact homes, so that they were able to go between them to hatch a plan without being seen, and then they set up wagons in the streets to serve as barricades. All of this happened in the span of that one night. Just before dawn, and amidst a heavy rainstorm, they set their plan in motion, while Plataean men shouted and charged at the Thebans, Plataean women and the town slaves all climbed to the top of their rooftops and threw stones and clay tiles at them. The panic-stricken Thebans, who now found themselves being attacked in the dark, in muddy rain, and in an unfamiliar location, fled for their lives throughout the city. But they were pursued by the Plataean men, who intimately knew their city and could stop their escape. The only gate open was the one that they had used to enter but this had been shut by some Plataean, who drove the spike of a javelin into the wooden bar instead of a bolt. Like keys, these special bolts could release the bar and permit the gate to open, but lacking the proper bolt, one could only open the gate by cutting through the bar, a noisy and lengthy process, and not a task that the Thebans would have been able to do at this point. And so they were trapped, and as such, they were chased around the city like trapped animals. Some managed to climb the wall and hurled themselves over it, in most cases to their death, while others were caught and killed. But the largest swath of Thebans managed to trap themselves in a large building next to the city wall. And upon seeing this, the Plataeans closed the door. They then contemplated lighting the building on fire, but then these men and the rest of the Theban survivors wandering about the city agreed to an unconditional surrender. Meanwhile, the larger Theban army had intended to come and aid the smaller force after it had secured the city of Plataea from the inside, but the downpour of rain had flooded the Asopus River, which separated Thebes from Plataea, and so they were delayed, as the crossing of the river was not quick and easy. By the time they managed to arrive, the survivors from the invading force, about 180 of 300, had already surrendered and were taken as prisoners. And so, in retaliation, the Thebans made it known that in exchange for their hostages, they would seize those Plataeans who lived in the countryside in order to swap with them. 
the Plataeans responded by sending a herald who reproached them for their unscrupulous attempt to seize their city in the time of peace and warned them to leave their citizens alone in the countryside. He also said that if they did this and the Theban army retreated immediately, once they arrived back home, the Thebans would release their prisoners. But if this warning should be ignored, the Plataeans threatened that they would put the Theban prisoners to death. The Thebans took heed, though, and withdrew their army back to Thebes. At the same time, after learning about the situation from another Plataean herald, the Athenians immediately recognized the unique position that Plataea found itself in because of the value of its Theban prisoners. For one, Greek cities never took the loss of their citizens lightly. But more importantly, one of the captains was Eurymachus, a leading politician in Thebes. And as hostages, these prisoners might have served as a disincentive to any Boeotian invasion of Attica. But an Athenian herald with their message to Plataea arrived too late. As the Plataeans gave way to their anger and executed all 180 of their captives, despite the fact that the Thebans had complied and withdrawn from their territory. By traditional standards of Greek warfare, this was seen as an atrocity, the first of many that only grew in horror as the war progressed. But a sneak attack at night in peacetime was also outside the code of honor for hoplite warfare. Regardless, the Thebans naturally wanted vengeance. This led the Plataeans to send another herald to Athens, asking their allies to come and help them. And so the Athenians obliged and marched right away to Plataea, bringing food and 80 hoplites of their own to act as a garrison in the city against an inevitable Theban response. In preparation, the Plataeans removed all of the children and most of the women, except for the 110 left behind, to bake bread for the garrison. In addition, all of the men were removed, except for 400 hoplites, who joined the 80 Athenian hoplites, for a total of 480 men to garrison the city. Although the Athenians had promised to send a full army in order to defend the city if Thebes attacked with their army, help would never arrive because this series of actions, which was a clear breach of the peace treaty, compelled the Spartans to finally enter the fray after nine months of preparation. As both sides prepared for war, Sparta had sent embassies to the Persian king Artaxerxes and to other unspecified non-Greek powers, as well as to any neutral, uncommitted Greek state. Sparta also sent orders for their Italian and Sicilian allies to provide a specified sum of money and to start building more triremes, with the goal of 5,000. The quota of each city was determined by its size. Until these were ready, they were ordered to remain neutral and to still admit Athenian ships into their harbors. Athens, meanwhile, had sent embassies to those in their empire immediately around the Peloponnesus, including Corsaira, Cephalonia, Arcania, and Zacynthus, to notify them that they would be relied upon on upcoming naval campaigns. Likewise, the Spartans ordered their Peloponnesian League allies to prepare provisions and to send two-thirds of their fighting forces to the Isthmus of Corinth, where they would gather for a forthcoming invasion of Attica. The remaining third was ordered to remain at their respective cities and to guard against any Athenian amphibious landings. Plutarch says that the number of the two-thirds levy was 60,000, though most scholars have thought about 30,000 to be more likely. Regardless, this grand Peloponnesian League army was to be led by the Spartan king Archidamus, officially kicking off the Peloponnesian War. We owe the concept of a single Peloponnesian War, extending from 431 to 404 BC, to Thucydides. 
Any other historian might have seen a continuous war, extending from 460 to 404 BC, or three distinct wars, one from 460 to 446 BC, one from 431 to 421 BC, and another beginning somewhere between 418 and 415 and continuing to 404 BC. But Thucydides colligated the events of the 27 years, meaning that he tied separate events together in order to form a coherent whole. And so it has been tradition ever since to think of the Peloponnesian War as this 27-year event of continuous fighting, when in fact there were many different phases. The first phase of the conflict, from 431 to 421 BC, has been traditionally labeled the Archidamian War by modern scholars. However, Archidamus was a secondary player in the war's origins and in its strategies, and so it has also been known as the Ten Years' War. Other scholars, though, have preferred to call it Pericles' War, as it was the policies and strategies of the Athenian leader who dominated its beginnings and shaped its course for its first years. Regardless, the first ten years of the war will be a distinct entity from the rest. After the Peloponnesian troops had assembled at the Isthmus of Corinth, Archidamus called together the generals of each polis, as well as their officers, and gave a lengthy speech, in which he called for caution, vigilance, and discipline in the mission that they were about to embark upon. This speech clearly shows that Archidamus still wasn't sold on the necessity of this war. Furthermore, even as he marched two-thirds of the Peloponnesian League's army towards Attica, Archidamus seems to still have held out the hope that there wouldn't be the need for conflict, as he had sent a Spartan ambassador, named Melissippus, to the Athenians to inquire if they were going to yield now that they had seen the size of the Peloponnesian army at its doorstep. However, Pericles had already proposed a decree forbidding the admission of any herald or embassy from the Peloponnesians into Athens while they were in the field, and so the Athenians did not allow the Spartan envoy to enter into the city, much less the ecclesia, to speak. He was told that in the future, if the Spartans had a proposition to make to the Athenians, first they must retire to their own territory before dispatching any embassies to Athens. Then, an Athenian was sent to escort Melissippus out of Attica and to prevent him from talking to any other Athenians. When he reached the Attic frontier, Thucydides records that Melissippus said, quote, This day will be the beginning of great evils for the Hellenes. End quote. And so, upon receiving the news of his failed diplomatic overture, Archidamus had no choice but to proceed, and so the march on Attica began. The Thebans, though, had other plans, and presumably, under the approval of Archidamus, they broke off their contingent from the main Peloponnesian coalition in order to join up with the remainder of their army and their cavalry in Boeotia. The combined Theban forces then marched on Plataea and laid waste to its countryside. We will return back to the happenings at Plataea shortly. As for Archidamus, instead of taking the fastest route to Athens, when he arrived at the Megarid, he did not proceed southeast to Eleusis, but north to Oenoi, an Athenian fortress near the Attic-Boeotian border. Although Oenoi was a walled city, used as a strategic outpost by the Athenians in times of war, taking it at the onset of the war, though, seemed to have very little strategic purpose, and even so, it was not going to be an easy task, as it would have required an extended siege and the abandonment of the main purpose of the expedition which was to ravage Attica. And so Archidamus's motives here probably were political, not martial, as he seems to have still held out hope that war could be prevented if he waited out the Athenians in their territory with such a large enemy army. 
Eventually, though, his Peloponnesian allies began to grow unhappy with him. Even before the war started, they had accused him of weakness and of having Athenian sympathies, because he loitered at the Isthmus, and they marched much lower than normal. But now that they had wasted such valuable time in Oenoi, they began to suspect Archidamus's true intentions. During this interval, as we will see, the Athenians were carrying in their property from the countryside and gathering in the city, and it was the belief of the Peloponnesians that a quick advance would have still found everything out in the open, had it not been for Archidamus's procrastination. And so after he had assaulted Oenoi, and every possible attempt to take it had failed, he was eventually compelled to abandon the siege and head south towards Athens. Meanwhile, after the Athenians declined the Spartan envoy, Pericles laid out his defensive strategy that we discussed last episode to the people in the Ecclesia. In doing so, he backed up why this strategy would work by listing the city's vast financial and military resources, which we also discussed last episode. Particularly, Pericles stressed that although they had plenty of reserve financial resources, they still had to keep a tight rein on their allies in order to ensure that the money for their navy would be continuously brought in, because success in this war is dependent upon their navy, and their navy is dependent upon money to rebuild the ships and to pay the rowers. Pericles also believed that when Archidamus invaded Attica and ravaged the countryside, he might choose to leave his estates alone, either because he was his guest friend or as was the case in the first Peloponnesian War, he might act under instructions from Sparta for the purpose of creating suspicions amongst the Athenians that Pericles had worked out a deal to save his property while the rest of the Athenians lost theirs. And so, in order to avoid any suspicion, Pericles announced to the people in the Ecclesia that if this were to happen, he would make his estate public property and then donate it to the Athenian people. The Athenians listened to Pericles' advice, and it's a measure of his influence and eloquence that he was able to persuade his fellow Athenians to do something so conspicuously at odds with the traditional Greek warrior ethos. As the Athenian farmers abandoned their land in the Attic countryside, instead of preparing to fight for their land in a traditional hoplite battle against the invading Peloponnesian army, they took with them their families and what few household goods could be loaded on wagons, and huddled with the city dwellers inside the long walls that linked Athens to Piraeus. Included were the woodwork of their houses, as wooden doors, sills, window frames, shutters, and the like were very valuable, and so were built to be easily removed. All of the cattle, sheep, and other pack animals were loaded into Athenian transport ships and moved to Euboea and the adjacent islands. When they all arrived in Athens, only a few had city houses of their own, or were able to find shelter with friends or relatives. And so most had to seek out empty space in the city, or bunk down in temples and shrines, which no doubt scandalized the pious, as almost every vacant space had to be occupied in order to accommodate everyone. And so not even sanctuaries of the gods were exempt, except for those on the Acropolis and the temple of Eleusinian Demeter and the Agora. Some even went as far as the Piraeus, into the territory between the long walls, while others ended up sleeping in the towers along the walls. Thucydides reports that although they believed in Pericles and took his advice, the Athenians were still greatly distressed at the prospect of having to abandon their country homes and their hereditary temples in order to move into the city and change their habits of life. Most Athenians, though, probably thought that this would not last too long, and so it would only be a temporary inconvenience. But when it proved to last longer than they had expected, that would become a different story entirely. At the end of May, right when the grain was ripe, 
the Peloponnesian army had arrived at the doorstep of Athens. Encamping at Eleusis in the Thriacian plain, they began to ravage the Attic countryside, cutting down grain crops and damaging vines and olive trees along the way. There was even a very minor skirmish with some Athenian cavalry who were on the lookout at a place called Raiti, which is thought to be at the southeastern corner of the Thriacian plain, at the foot of Mount Agelios. Afterwards, Archidamus led the army northeast to Acharnae, the largest of the Athenian deems, where they established a camp from which they continued their assault on the countryside. This itself was contentious amongst the Peloponnesians, who wanted to instead go southeast to the immediate area around the city of Athens, which was the land of the nobility. A march into those areas would have been the most provocative, would have done the greatest damage, and would have applied the greatest pressure on Pericles' policy of restraint. Again, though, Archidamus seemed to have held out hope that the Athenians would see reason. His stated argument, though, was that an attack on Acharnae, which was the largest Athenian deem, and which provided 3,000 hoplites to the Athenian army, would cause the Athenians to give up on Pericles' policy and now give battle. Archidamus, who had been very critical of Spartan war strategy and doubted its effectiveness to defeat the Athenians, at this point had been apparently won over to its possible success by his decision to devastate Acharnae. He likely felt confident that the combination of the young men's anger at the destruction of Attica and the pressure from the influential Acharnians who supplied 3,000 hoplites would force Pericles to risk a pitch battle. Archidamus' analysis of Athenian public opinion was correct, but he seriously underestimated Pericles' determination to maintain his strategy. Similarly, many Athenians had held out hope that the Peloponnesian army, once it reached Eleusis and the Thriacian plain, would withdraw quickly and without a war, as they had done in the First Peloponnesian War. But when they began to lay waste to the land of Acharnae, which sat less than seven miles from the Acropolis, the mood in Athens changed to fury, both at the Spartans, but also at Pericles. This was something that most Athenian men had never seen before, except for the elderly who had been alive during the Persian Wars. And so huge mobs began to form in the streets, calling for them to sally out and attack the Peloponnesians. And as Archidamus stated, the foremost among these were the Acharnians, whose land was being ravaged. In short, the whole city had lost its patience, and Pericles was the object of general indignation. They began to turn against him, and his past advice had now been forgotten. Sensing the temperature in the city, some of Pericles' close friends even urged him to lead an army out of Athens to fight the Peloponnesians. However, Pericles remained unwavering in his defensive strategy, and according to Plutarch, he tried to calm down those who were eager to fight and who were in distress at what the enemy was doing. By saying that trees, though cut and lopped off, would grow back quickly. But if men were destroyed, it was not as easy to regrow them again. This sage advice ultimately fell on deaf ears. That's because the office to which the people had elected Pericles almost every year for some 30 years, and from which he carried out all of his activities as a great political leader, a brilliant orator, and a patron of the arts and sciences, was that of Strategos whose foremost responsibility was to lead armies and navies into battle. And so, because of the strategy he was implementing, many people steadfastly accused him of being a coward for not leading an army out against the enemy. The most notable of his attackers was Cleon, who had opposed Pericles for most of the last decade, as we discussed in episode 88. 
Cleon belonged to a new class of politicians in Athens that weren't from aristocratic families, whose wealth and power came from the land. Instead, theirs came from trade and manufacturing. Such occupations were considered base and unworthy by the aristocrats, as we discussed in episode 68. In fact, Aristophanes would later mock Cleon as a tanner and a leather merchant, as well as a thief and a brawler whose voice roared like a torrent and sounded like a scalded pig. He would appear in his comedies in a state of anger, as a lover of war who constantly stirred up hatred. Thucydides calls him the most violent of the citizens, and likewise describes his speech as harsh and bullying. Aristotle in his Constitution of the Athenians comments that Cleon, quote, seems to have corrupted the people more than anyone by his attacks. He was the first to shout while speaking in Ecclesia, the first to use abusive language there, and the first to hitch up his skirts and move about while addressing the people, although the other speakers behaved properly, end quote. Although these aristocratic authors are all clearly caricaturing the demagogic Cleon, he was nonetheless a very powerful figure in the Ecclesia, and would come to play an important role as the war progressed. But right now, he was only one of a number of enemies who began to attack Pericles publicly, though he may have been the loudest. Still though, by this point, Pericles' personal prestige had risen to such a degree that he was able to withstand even this massive storm of criticism. However, he knew that if the people voted on the issue, the Athenians, who were angry and thus would be prone to poor judgment, would make a fatal mistake. And so he avoided convening the ecclesia, fearing that the populace might rashly decide to challenge the Spartan army in the field. As meetings of the assembly were called at the discretion of its rotating presidents, the Pratanes of the Boule, Pericles had no formal control over this. But the respect in which Pericles was held by the Pratanes was still sufficient to persuade them to do as he wished. And so, even in the face of mounting pressure, Pericles did not waver from his defensive strategy. He instead focused on attending to the defenses of the city walls, and he only responded to the invading Peloponnesian army by sending out cavalry detachments to deter them from approaching too close to the city. At one point, there was a minor cavalry skirmish between the Athenians and the Thessalians against the Boeotians, in which the Boeotians got the upper hand. The Peloponnesian army only occupied Attica for about a month, though, as the provisions for such a large force started to run out. In addition, in the tradition of earlier hoplite warfare, the soldiers were expected and needed to be home in order to participate in the harvest themselves. And for the Spartans in particular, they needed to be home to keep the helots under control, as they could not be left unsupervised for long periods of time. And so, since the Athenians neither yielded nor came out to fight, the Peloponnesian army abandoned their camp and moved eastward from Acarnae to ravage the area between Mount Parnes and Mount Pentelicos, and then returned home through Boeotia to Megara to the Isthmus of Corinth. Once there, they broke up to their respective cities. No doubt, for the Peloponnesians, the first year of the war had to have felt relatively unsatisfactory. After the Peloponnesians left Attica, now that the war seemed certain to last for two or even three years, the Athenians, particularly Pericles, took additional steps to strengthen the defenses of Athens by posting permanent guards at certain integral points along their walls, in order to watch for any sudden incursions by land or by sea. As we mentioned earlier, the Athenians had set aside a reserve of a thousand talents from the money on the Acropolis that was only to be used in the event of an attack on the city by sea. 
Along with this sum of money, the Athenians also set aside a special fleet of their 100 best triremes from each year to be kept in permanent reserve. These were under the purview of 100 triarchoi, or commanders of triremes, who were tasked with keeping them ready just in case Athens would be attacked by naval forces. New triremes would be built every year in order to replace those that had been lost, worn out, or retired. Although the trireme design by this point was standardized, some were judged to have been built better or proved to be faster than others. These were the best ships of the year, and they would have been the ones kept in reserve. Presumably, the ones that they replaced would then have been admitted into active duty status. Furthermore, it was decreed that if anyone should put forward a motion to use the money or these ships for any purpose whatsoever, except that of defending the city in the event of an evasion by sea, it should be treated as a capital offense for either case, and so those who proposed it should be punished with death. Meanwhile, in response to the Peloponnesian invasion by land, Pericles also dispatched a large fleet of 100 triremes, with 1,000 hoplites and 400 archers, to carry out counterattacks on enemy territory. He did not sail with them himself, though, as he wanted to remain behind and keep the city under watch and ward until the Peloponnesians had withdrawn. And so the fleet was under the command of Carcinos, Proteus, and Socrates, not the philosopher. These men are otherwise insignificant on the historical record. Anyways, this fleet would act as the offensive element in Pericles' strategy, tasked with sailing around the Peloponnesus to make raids along the coast. The fleet was large enough to easily defeat any resistance it might encounter, to make forced landings, and even to take small towns if the opportunity should arise. Mostly, though, they launched surprise attacks, followed by speedy withdrawals. Its intent was to avenge the Peloponnesian invasion of Attica, and to impress upon them the cost of the war that they had chosen to fight. After making several raids on unspecified towns along the Laconian coast, the Athenians were joined by 50 Corsairian vessels and a number of other ships from their western allies. This combined fleet first landed at Methone in Mycenae, ravaged the territory, and attacked the poorly defended walled town, which had no garrison in place and had weak walls of its own. They may have sacked Methone, but for the bravery of Brasidas, a Spartan officer who was in command of a guard of a hundred hoplites for the defense of the district. Once he heard of the attack, he led his men quickly into the town, dashing through the army of the Athenians and forcing themselves into Methone, where they reinforced it with a garrison. He lost a few men in this endeavor, but he saved the town and the Spartans rewarded him with a vote of gratitude afterwards. He was the first officer who obtained this notice during the war, and he will prove himself once again to be a major Spartan figure later in the war. After Methone, the Athenians continued to the town of Thea in the region of Elis on the northwestern Peloponnesian coast. After ravaging the area for two days, they were able to defeat a picked force of 300 men that had come down from the valley of Elis. They then captured Phia, but were forced to abandon it and sail away when the entire Elian army came to its rescue. Because for all of their naval strength, the Athenian-led coalition would not have been able to hold even a coastal city against a full assault. After Elis, the fleet then sailed away from the Peloponnese, northwards, into the northwestern Greek region of Acarnania, which was in the Corinthian sphere of interest. There, the Athenians took the Corinthian-controlled port of Solium, which sat opposite the Corinthian-controlled island of Leucas, and entrusted it to some friendly Acarnanians at the town of Palera. These Acarnanians would hold on to it throughout the rest of the war. 
The fleet also stormed the town of Astacus on the northern shores of the Corinthian Gulf, expelled its tyrant of Arcus, and incorporated it into their alliance. Finally, they seized without a battle the neutral and large wooded island of Cephalonia, which was strategically located in regards to Acarnania, Corsaira, and Lucas. These successes in northwestern Greece were a part of Pericles' offensive naval strategy, as the Athenians' possession of them meant that they now had the ability to hit the entire Peloponnesian coastline with ease, whenever they so pleased. The eastern coastline with a fleet from Athens, and the northern and western coastlines with ships from Athens' western allies. Afterwards, with these accomplishments in hand, towards the end of the summer the fleet separated, as those ships from Athens, Corsaira, and the other allies began to sail back to their respective homes before the winter winds blew in. While all of this was taking place, 30 Athenian ships under the command of Cleopompus had sailed to Locris in central Greece, and from there they protected Euboea, an island vital to Athens. The Athenians ravaged some territory on the Locrian coast, defeated a force of Locrians in battle at Alope, and took the town of Thronium, which was well situated in regards to Euboea. The Athenians also converted Atalante, a deserted islet off of the Locrian coast, into a fortified post in order to prevent pirates, looking to take advantage of the war, from attempting to capture and plunder merchant ships coming in and out of Euboea. To increase their naval security around Piraeus and to ensure open waters for trade into and out of Athens, Athenian triremes also patrolled the seas around Attica, and the Athenians sent another force to attack Agina in the Saronic Gulf where they expelled all of the inhabitants of the island on the grounds that they held some responsibility for the war. Then, settlers were sent to the island as it became a Claruki, with Athenian colonists and a garrison. A wave of Aginetan refugees thus flooded into the Peloponnese, which forced the Spartans to settle the banished Aginetans in Theria, a region on the border between Laconia and the Argolid that extends down to the sea. The Spartans also did this because the Aginetans had assisted the Spartans during the time of the earthquake in Laconia and the revolt of the Helots over three decades prior, as we discussed in episode 41. The Aginetans there were tasked with resisting any Athenian landing in that region. Those who didn't settle there were scattered throughout the rest of the Peloponnese. During the summer, Athens also increased security in the important northeastern corner of their empire by winning over the formerly hostile prince Nymphodorus of Abdera, a city on the northern shores of the Aegean. They made him their proxenos, or diplomatic agent, who although a citizen and resident of his own state, served as a friend or representative of a foreign state. And so he was Athens' representative in the Thracian region, and he rewarded them handsomely, as he brought Athens into an alliance with his brother-in-law, King Satalkis of the Adrisian kingdom of Thrace. The region of Thrace had nominally been a part of the Persian Empire, but after the Persian Wars, the Adrisian Kingdom was able to acquire power in the region by unifying the 40 or so Thracian tribes under a single ruler, named Teres, who was Setalkis' father. He did so through military conquests, and so the kingdom he left his son was one that had a battle-hardened military. Setalkis had taken on his father's fighting prowess, and he too enlarged his kingdom through successful wars during the 430s BC. It eventually comprised the whole territory from Abdera in the south, to the mouths of the Danube River in the north, and from the Black Sea in the east, to the sources of the Strymon River in the west. And so his huge kingdom pressed against Macedon, and the two quickly grew in animosity towards each other. Athens's main problem in the region was the ongoing siege of Potidaea, 
which drained the treasury. And Sataki's assistance would go a long way in alleviating this problem. And so, at the urging of Nymphodorus, Sataki's traveled to Athens, where he concluded an alliance with the Athenians. In return, Nymphodorus's son, Sadocus, was given Athenian citizenship, which was something that had considerable weight and wasn't typically given to foreigners. As part of their alliance, Sataukis promised to lend cavalry and light-armed infantry, called Peltasts, to the Athenians, and to help them bring the siege of Potidaea to an end. Peltasts were troops armed only with a small light shield, a javelin, and a short sword. Unhindered by body armor, they could move much more quickly than the fully armed hoplite, whose equipment was both far more heavy and far more expensive than theirs. Anyways, Nymphodorus also temporarily reconciled King Perdiccas II of Macedon with Athens. As a result, Perdiccas joined the Athenians under Formio in an expedition against Potidaea's local allies, the Halkidians. And so, by the close of summer 431 BC, both Idrisian Thrace and Macedon were now Athenian allies. As autumn approached, with the Peloponnesian troops now back at their respective homes, Pericles himself led an army of 10,000 citizens and 3,000 medic hoplites, and a large number of light-armed troops into the field, as the first of what would become annual Athenian raids into the Megarid. The 100 Athenian ships, sailing back after raiding the Peloponnese and northwestern Greece, had just passed Agina when word reached them that their fellow citizens were marching in full force out of Athens and so they sailed over to the Megarid in order to join them. Then, the Athenians laid waste to the Megarian countryside. No attempt was made to capture Megara, though, as this would have involved overextending the empire's manpower in order to hold down unwilling subjects. Instead, their aim was surgical and precise. The Athenians hoped that by devastating Megara's fields, and with their ongoing trade embargo, this would ultimately force the Megarians to succumb. In addition, this would be the largest Athenian army ever brought together, as every single able-bodied Athenian citizen, besides those at Potidaea, were involved. Although a much smaller army could have produced the same results, Pericles was well aware of how low Athenian morale had dropped at the moment, and so he launched an invasion on such a grand scale in order to relieve frustration and to demonstrate visibly the power of Athens to the Megarians. After ravaging the greater part of their territory, they retired back behind Athens' walls. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by Babbel. As a classicist, I focused more on reading ancient languages, like Greek and Latin, and I've always regretted that I never focused on learning to speak other languages. But now I'm choosing to rectify that with Babbel the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language with confidence. You can choose from 14 different languages, including Dutch, Danish, English, French, German, Indonesian, Italian, Norwegian, Polish, Brazilian Portuguese, Russian, Swedish, Spanish, and Turkish. Babbel is designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks. Lessons are created by over 100 language experts, real people, not by a translation machine. You learn through interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology, so you can perfect your pronunciation and accent. Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all devices. You can try Babbel for free. Download the app or text HISTORY to 484848. Text HISTORY to 484848 to try Babbel for free. That's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y to 484848. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. 
In the early winter, the former tyrant Varcus wished to return to Astacus, and so he persuaded the Corinthians to sail over with 40 ships and 1,500 hoplites, along with a number of mercenaries that he hired, in order to restore him. This fleet was commanded by Euphemidas, Timoxenos, and Eumachus. These men are otherwise insignificant on the historical record. Anyways, they were successful in retaking Astacus and restoring Avarcus to power, but they failed in raiding other places along the Acarnanian coastline. In addition, they unsuccessfully attacked the shores of Cephalonia, losing some men in a surprise counterattack, and were forced to sail home. Also over the winter, the Athenians began work on a new project in the navy yard. They selected ten old triremes and converted each one into a hippagogos, or horse carrier, in order to transport horses quicker and more efficiently. To make the change, the interior of the trireme's hull had to be altered. The carpenters dismantled the rowing seats of the lower two tiers of oarsmen and sealed up the oar ports, leaving an enclosed space some 80 feet long by 16 feet wide. The empty hold, formerly the domain of 108 rowers, could now accommodate 30 horses. Fifteen animals could be tethered along either side, spaced about five feet apart. Storage spaces were then created for fodder and fresh water, saddles and bridles, and for the equipment of the cavalrymen. The sterns of the ships were then refitted with removable sections and walkways, so that when the ships came to shore, the horses could easily be led or even ridden out into the beach. The creation of these horse carriers marked the first major innovation in Athenian naval architecture since Cimon introduced the fully decked troop carrier 35 years earlier. The implications here for the Athenian navy are significant because for the first time the Athenian navy had the ability to transport cavalry to war zones overseas, just as the Persians had done to them on the beaches of Marathon. Though the first year of the war saw few casualties, by tradition, the Athenians still held their annual public funeral for those who had died in service of the state, as we discussed in great detail in episode 79. To review briefly, the Greek custom at this time was to burn the bodies of the dead and then to gather up the bones and bury them. The bones were left in a tent for three days so that offerings could be made to them by their relatives. Then a funeral procession was held, with ten cypress coffins carrying the bones, one for each of the Athenian tribes, and an eleventh for the bones that could not be identified. Any citizen or stranger who so wished could join in the procession, and the female relatives of the deceased were there to wail at the burial. Finally, they were buried at the Demoseon Sema, or public grave, in the Karamaiko Cemetery, which sat near the Dipylon Gate on the western edge of the city of Athens, on the road heading to Eleusis. The last part of the ceremony was a eulogy, delivered by a prominent Athenian citizen. Thucydides describes him as a man chosen by the state for his wisdom and eminent reputation. So if there was any doubt, Pericles' campaign of retribution must have reaffirmed his position amongst the people, as it was he who was chosen to deliver the war's first funeral oration in what would become known as his famous and emotional funeral oration over the war dead, as recorded in Book 2 of Thucydides' History. We can be reasonably sure that Pericles delivered a speech over the winter of 431-430 BC, but how closely the famous speech that appears in Thucydides' history approximates what Pericles actually said is another question. Significantly, Thucydides begins recounting the speech by saying, quote, Pericles, son of Xanthippus, spoke like this, end quote. Had he quoted the speech verbatim, he would have written Tade this or these words, instead of toyade, like this, or words like these. 
And so it seems that Thucydides was just relaying the type of speech that he thought was called for in this situation. Regardless, the speech best demonstrates Pericles' talents of persuasion, as he had the unenviable task of explaining to the Athenian people why their support and suffering for his strategy was justified, and why their continued dedication was necessary. According to Thucydides, following the burial, Pericles climbed atop an elevated platform in order to address all of those who had gathered. He begins his speech by noting how difficult it is to properly praise the dead, but since it is the law, he offers to do his duty and to make his best attempt at it. His speech, though, differs from the usual Athenian funerary speeches in that it focuses not on the dead themselves, but on the city of Athens and the way of life it represents. A way of life that is defined as the antithesis of everything Spartan. In the process, he paints a picture of the character and superiority of Athenian democracy, and so it is essentially a eulogy of Athens itself, praising the war dead by glorifying the achievements of the city for which they died. Pericles does this by focusing on, quote, the road by which we reached our position, the form of government under which our greatness grew, and the national habits out of which it sprang, end quote. And so after Pericles praises all those who contributed to Athens' acquisition of its empire, he describes the form of government under which the city grew great. The organizing principle of the speech assumes that a wise form of government provides the cornerstone for a good life in all of its manifestations. Thus the politeia, meaning a type of government, or a constitution, that a state chooses will have the widest ramifications for the nature of its citizens and the spirit of its communal life. Pericles stresses that the Athenians have the best politeia because of their unique democratic institutions that provide equal justice under law, which leads to rewards based on merit, and creates a society both free and law-abiding. Quote, If we look to the laws, they afford equal justice to all in their private differences. If a man is able to serve the state, he is not hindered by the obscurity of his condition. End quote. He also praises Athens for its attributes that stood out amongst their neighbors, such as its democracy when he elaborates that trust is justly placed on the citizens rather than relying only on the system and the policy of the city-state, unlike Sparta. Pericles notes that Athenian citizens boast a freedom for pleasure and recreation that differs from their enemies, the Spartans. Quote, The freedom we enjoy in our government extends also to our ordinary life. There, far from exercising a jealous surveillance over each other, we do not feel called upon to be angry with our neighbor for doing what he likes. End quote. The liberality here of which Pericles spoke also extends to Athens' foreign policy, as Athens is open to the world. Quote, we throw open our city to the world and never by alien acts exclude foreigners from any opportunity of learning or observing, although the eyes of an enemy may occasionally profit by our liberality. End quote. Yet Athens' values of equality and openness do not, according to Pericles, hinder Athens' greatness, but they enhance it as they rely upon their citizens' natural capacity, not special training, to meet any challenge. Quote, Advancement in public life falls to reputations for capacity, class considerations not being allowed to interfere with merit. Our ordinary citizens, though occupied with the pursuits of industry, are still fair judges of public matters. At Athens, we live exactly as we please, and yet are just as ready to encounter every legitimate danger. End quote. In the climax of his praise of Athens, Pericles applauds Athens' concern for culture, their sensible use of wealth, their inclusion of all citizens in politics, their combination of daring and deliberation and action, and their liberal generosity. 
Quote, In short, I say that as a city, we are the school of Hellas. While I doubt if the world can produce a man who, where he has only himself to depend upon, is equal to so many emergencies, and graced by so happy a versatility as the Athenian. End quote. Essentially, Pericles believes that Athens is a model for Hellas, a city worthy to rule others and worthy of the devotion of the men who died in her cause. Pericles then states that he chose to emphasize the greatness of Athens in order to convey the necessity that the citizens of Athens must continue to support the war, to show them that what they were fighting for was of the utmost importance. To help drive this point home, he links his praise of the city to the dead Athenians whom he was speaking of that gave their lives to the cause of protecting the city of Athens, its citizens, and its freedom. Pericles asserts that these men died gloriously, preferring death to submission or dishonor. Quote, For the Athens that I have celebrated is only what the heroism of these and their like have made her. None of these men allowed either wealth, with its prospect of future enjoyment, to unnerve his spirit, or poverty, with its hope of a day of freedom and riches, to tempt him to shrink from danger. No, holding that vengeance upon their enemies was more to be desired than any personal blessings, and reckoning this to be the most glorious of hazards, they joyfully determined to accept the risk. Thus, choosing to die resisting, rather than to live submitting, they fled only from dishonor. End quote. Pericles then says that he regards the soldiers who gave their lives as being truly worthy of merit, and that if anyone should ask, they should look at their final moments when they gave their lives to their country, and that should leave no doubt in the mind of the doubtful. He explains that fighting for one's country was a great honor, and that it was like wearing a cloak that concealed any negative implications, because his imperfections would be outweighed by his merits as a citizen. He then praises the soldiers for not faltering in their execution during the war, and for putting aside their desires and wishes for the greater cause. Because, as they are described by Pericles, Athenian citizens were distinct from the citizens of other nations. They were open-minded, tolerant, and ready to understand and follow orders, and their system of democracy allowed them to have a voice amongst those who made important decisions that would affect them. Therefore, he proceeds to point out that the greatest honor and act of valor for an Athenian is to live and die for the freedom of the state that Pericles believed was different and more special than any other neighboring city. Pericles asserts, quote, Therefore, having judged that to be happy means to be free, and to be free means to be brave. Do not shy away from the risks of war. End quote. Pericles then turns to the audience and exhorts them to live up to the standards set by the deceased, and to emulate the war dead's valor and patriotism, saying that they risked all and lost their lives, but the renown of their deeds will last forever. Quote, so died these men as becomes Athenians. You, their survivors, must determine to have as unfaltering a resolution in the field, though you may pray that it may have a happier outcome. End quote. Pericles comforts the parents of the war dead while acknowledging their grief. He advises those who can to have more children and those past childbearing age to ease their years with the knowledge that their sons died with honor. He says that the sons and brothers of the dead may seek to equal their renown, but that their widows should best seek to avoid notice of any sort. Quote, and since I must also make some mention of womenly virtue to those who will now be widows, I will define it in this brief admonition. Your greatest fame consists in being no worse than your natures, and in having the least possible reputation amongst males for good or ill. 
Pericles' concluding charge to the women of Athens seems to be at odds with how he lived his life, with a companion far more visible and renowned than many of his fellow politicians. It is posited on the notion of women being every way the opposite of political men. For more information on the ideal view of Athenian women, check out episode 74. Pericles concludes a speech by reminding those present that Athens will pay for the upbringing of the children of the dead. His speech, though, has a markedly defensive tone. Its purpose seems to be to counter suggestions that an easygoing polis like Athens, with its love of words, ideas, and beauty, could not compete successfully in war with a highly regulated militarized society like Sparta, where words are despised as a hindrance to action. People have little choice about how they live their lives and secrecy is the order of the day. Essentially, through this funeral oration, Pericles led a call to all Athenians to devote themselves fully to the idea of Athens' greatness, and to band together because of it in fighting the Spartans to preserve their empire and their way of life. This was the first oration recorded that we know of making such claims of loyalty, not based off of kinship or tribe, but to an abstract idea of what someone was fighting for. The funeral oration brought the first year of the war to a close, and inspired by Pericles' power and brilliance, the Athenians stiffened their resolve to carry on. One particular Athenian, the tragic playwright Euripides, was highly influenced by the larger geopolitical events taking place, and so as the Peloponnesian War exploded forth at the end of the 430s BC, the situation in Athens changed drastically, and so too did the tone of Euripides' plays. And so, at the outset of the war, we see in several of his plays an underlying theme of patriotic sentiment. We discussed the first of those, the Heraclidae, or the Children of Heracles, in episode 53. Euripides performed this play at the city Dionysia in the early spring of 430 BC, and he uses this medium to attack the ungratefulness of Sparta towards Athens. Because while Athens protected the children of Heracles, who were fleeing their murderous uncle Eurystheus, the Spartans, who considered themselves to be descendants of these Heraclidae, were waging war against Athens. And so, as you can see, it was pro-Athenian, anti-Dorian propaganda to lift Athenian spirits and to paint the Spartans in the worst possible light. In the spring of 430 BC, we see action taking in the religious sphere as well. As we discussed in episode 59, cults of Zeus Eleutherius, or Zeus the bringer of freedom, were instituted on special occasions when the Greeks believed that they had experienced divine deliverance. For example, after the Persian Wars, an altar was built for Zeus Eleutherius to commemorate the unified defense of Greece against the invading Persians. An existing altar in the Athenian Agora, most likely belonging to Zeus Soter, or Zeus the Savior, was rebuilt around 430 BC together with a stoa, which formed a new sanctuary of Zeus Eleutherius Soter. The timing of the construction immediately after the war broke out suggests that the power of Zeus as a savior god who brings freedom was now being invoked against the invading Spartans. Despite these precautionary measures, the Athenians probably were generally confident at the end of the first year of the war. They had survived a Spartan invasion, for the most part, had inflicted damage on the enemy's coasts, and brought over new allies to their side. Although the monetary reserves on the Acropolis could sustain only two or three more years of war operations, Pericles was confident in his prediction that it wouldn't go beyond that, as he believed that the Peloponnesians would soon come to their senses and end their futile struggle against his defensive, maritime-based strategy. As the winter and early spring came to a close, both sides prepared to resume war operations, 
In the upcoming campaign season of 430 BC, saw two entirely predictable events and one entirely unexpected development. Predictably, in May, there was another invasion of Attica by the allied forces of the Peloponnesian League, as well as the continued harassment of the Peloponnesian coast by the Athenian fleet. The invading Peloponnesian army this time stayed in Attica for 40 days, slightly longer than the three weeks from the previous year. And although they did so with two-thirds of the number of forces as before, they were much more thorough in their devastation of Attica. After ravaging the plain around Athens once again, the Peloponnesians bypassed the city to the north and east and proceeded southwards into the Peralian region as far as Larium, where the Athenian silver mines were, and laid waste to the crops and farms there. But Pericles, who still held one of the offices of the Ten Strategoi, and who still had tremendous influence amongst the people, held the same opinion as the year before and would not let the Athenians march out against them. Instead, for the second year in a row, the Peloponnesians watched helplessly as an Athenian fleet rode out of the Piraeus to attack their own coasts. This time, Pericles personally led the naval expedition to plunder the coast of the Peloponnese. According to Plutarch, just before they disembarked, an eclipse of the sun frightened the crews as it was traditionally considered to be an ominous portent. But Pericles used the astronomical knowledge that he had acquired from his close friend, the philosopher Anaxagoras, to calm them. In any case, once the fleet finally sailed out from the Piraeus, Pericles led in an assault on the large and important city of Epidaurus, which sat directly across the Saronic Gulf, on the northern coast of the Argolid to the southwest of Athens. At his command was a fleet of 100 Athenian triremes, boarded with 4,000 hoplites and 3,000 cavalry in the 10 new horse transports. They were joined by 50 vessels from Chios and Lesbos, and this fleet was one of the largest forces that the Athenians had ever assembled on ships. Some scholars believe that the size of this force reveals a basic change in Pericles' policy, from a defensive to an offensive strategy, theorizing that he intended to take the city of Epidaurus by force and place a garrison in it to hold it, giving Athens a stronghold on the eastern Peloponnesian coast that was well situated to harass and threaten Corinth and to encourage Argos to join the war against the Spartans. However, Thucydides makes no mention of Pericles' motive here, and if it was meant to be something more than just a harassment of a coastal city, they botched it very badly then. Because, after arriving at Epidaurus, Pericles chose to ravage most of the surrounding territory instead, which gave the Epidaurians ample time to get their defenses in order. And so when the Athenians finally tried to take the town by assault, the Epidaurians were ready and waiting, and thus they were repelled. On the other hand, other scholars argue that the expedition, while a slight escalation, was still a continuation of Athens' seaborne policy, in which they ravaged coastal territory and sacked a town, if it was weakly defended, before moving on. With Epidaurus in particular, Pericles may have been motivated by domestic pressure to cause more visible harm to the enemy by sacking a larger coastal town, but his intent doesn't seem to be anything more than that since possessing Epidaurus would have required considerable manpower to ensure its continued loyalty to Athens, which would go completely against his planned defensive strategy. It seems likely then that Pericles chose this course of action because he had realized that he had to take a more aggressive step to weaken the enemy, but not one that was too aggressive, which would cause him to abandon his fundamental defensive strategy. Regardless, after Epidaurus, the fleet ravaged the land around Troezen, Halias, and Hermione, all cities on the southern part of the Argolid. From there, they moved to Prassii, on the eastern coast of Laconia. 
they not only ravaged the land around Prassia, but managed to sack the town itself. After this, though, the fleet sailed no further, possibly because the horse transports had slowed them down, or more likely because they had heard that the Peloponnesian army was no longer in Attica, which means that if they continued to harass the Peloponnesian coast, then they now might be met with much larger, possibly overwhelming forces. It's unclear, but the Peloponnesian army probably returned, either because they ran out of provisions, or most likely, because they got wind at the calamity that was taking place inside the city of Athens itself. It could also be for this reason too that the Athenian fleet returned home in June, instead of continuing on to the northwest again. Nobody, not even Pericles, could have predicted this new crisis that emerged in the city of Athens in the second year of the war. With a sudden influx of so many people into a limited space, not to mention the terrible hygienic state of the ancient world in general, the necessary conditions had been created for disease, as a terrible plague struck the population of Athens in the early summer of 430 BC. While its origin is not known for sure, Thucydides believes that it came from Ethiopia, meaning the land south of Egypt, and passed down the Nile River through merchant ships to Egypt, Libya, and much of the Persian Empire, and finally into the Greek world. Regardless of how or where it came from, its point of entry in Greece was the Athenian port of Piraeus. The Athenians in particular were more dependent now than ever on imports, while the Peloponnesians were cut off from foreign supplies by the vigilance of the Athenian navy. And so it's no wonder then that because of their unique situation in the city, that the Athenians would be the most devastated than any other Greek polis. When the plague began to take its first victims, it was initially believed that the Peloponnesians had poisoned Athens' water reserves. When the aforementioned fleet had departed from Piraeus that summer, the mysterious malady was still unidentified, but it quickly thereafter was determined to be a disease. After starting around the harbors, it spread rapidly through the crowded huts between the long walls and swiftly reached Athens itself, aided by the unsanitary environment of a city that was packed to capacity and beyond that summer not to mention that summers are quite hot in the Aegean. By the time the fleet had returned that summer, they discovered that the sickness that they had left behind had become a plague and had already claimed hundreds of lives. It would go on to ravage Attica for the next three years, from 430 to 427 BC, and would ultimately wipe out over 30,000 Athenian citizens, which is somewhere between one-fourth to one-third of the total population. Specifically, one-third of Athenian hoplites died of the plague, a number that can be determined by the differentiation in the register of names kept by the generals and the tribal commanders. Although we have no records for it, other segments of the population probably perished in the same proportion. It was a plague so severe and deadly that no one could recall anything happening quite like this before. And physicians ignorant of its nature not only were helpless, but they themselves died the fastest, since they had the most contact with the sick. Supplications in temples, divinations, and so forth were found to be equally futile, until finally the overwhelming nature of the disaster put a stop to them altogether. In the history of epidemics, the plague of Athens is remarkable for its one-sided affliction and ultimate influence on the outcome of a war. To this day, researchers are also indifferent on what specific disease was the culprit, as around 30 pathogens have been suggested to have caused the plague, with most believing that it was either smallpox, measles, bubonic plague, typhoid fever, typhus, or toxic shock syndrome. Based upon striking descriptive similarities with recent outbreaks in Africa, as well as the fact that the Athenian plague itself apparently came from Africa, 
as Thucydides recorded, Ebola, or a related viral hemorrhagic fever, has even been considered. However, given the possibility that profiles of a known disease may have morphed over time, or the Athenian plague was caused by a disease that no longer exists anymore, its exact nature may never be known. In addition, crowding caused by the influx of refugees into the city led to inadequate food and water supplies, and a probable proportionate increase in insects, lice, rats, and waste. These conditions could have encouraged more than one epidemic disease during the outbreak. Thucydides was even in the city at the time, and unfortunately contracted the disease. Miraculously, though, he recovered, and thus was able to record the symptoms of the plague and its progression through the body. He writes that people in good health all of a sudden were attacked by heats in the head, meaning fevers, and redness and inflammation in their eyes. Their throat and tongue produced a bloody discharge and emitted an unnatural foul breath. These symptoms were followed by sneezing and hoarseness, after which the pain soon reached the chest and produced a hard cough. When it fixed in the stomach, it became upset and discharges of bile of every color ensued. In most cases, there was also painful vomiting. Externally, bodies had reddish skin that broke out with small blisters and ulcers. It burned the skin so much that the infected person could not bear to wear any clothing that would touch the skin, and so they were forced to lay around naked. Some threw themselves into cold water, but it made no difference. They also had unquenchable thirst and the miserable feeling of insomnia, as they were unable to rest or sleep from the constant pain. On the seventh or eighth day, the disease descended further into the bowels and induced violent diarrhea which caused some to become so weak that it was generally fatal. The bodies of those who died were so battered and poisonous that birds of prey abstained from eating plague victims entirely. Many of those who didn't succumb to the plague and managed to survive still came out worse for the wear, as they either escaped with the loss of their extremities or their eyes, or were seized with an entire loss of memory of the event, amnesia, and did not know either themselves or their friends, dementia. Only the lucky managed to survive without these issues, such as Thucydides. There was no rhyme or reason as to how one managed to survive or die, though. Thucydides says that no remedy could be found because what may have worked in one case did harm in another. He believed that the despair at the moment anyone felt themselves sickening took away their ability to resist and left them a much easier prey to the disorder. And so for many, no matter the treatment, the result became inevitable. Some of those who recovered from the illness, sensing that they were now invincible against it, not only nursed the others who were sick, but, quote, in the jubilance of the moment, held the vain belief that they would never die from any other disease in the future either, end quote. Most, though, took a darker view of life, as the overwhelming catastrophe seemed to obviate the necessity for observing customary moral and religious norms. People refused to behave honorably because most did not expect to live long enough to enjoy a good reputation for it. Thucydides in particular focuses upon the plague's social consequences in view of the high level of mortality, which undermined not only religious observances, particularly those relating to the burial of the dead, but also common standards of decency. For example, because of the sheer contagiousness of the illness, many people died alone because they had nobody who was willing to risk caring for them. In addition, in their longing for water to quench their unquenchable thirst, many died laying around the fountains. In terms of burial rites, the Athenians disregarded traditional customs and instead buried the dead as best as they could, as the corpses were heaped on top of each other, left to rot until they were to be burned, or shoved into mass graves. 
Sometimes, after an Athenian had built up a pyre to burn a body, another Athenian would sneakily throw his body on it first, and then ignite it. Other times, those carrying the dead would come across an already burning funeral pyre, dump a new body on it, and walk away. As we discussed in episode 79, a mass grave of around 240 skeletons, dating to around 430 BC, has been found just outside of Athens' ancient cemetery of the Karamikos. The offerings found there during the excavations consisted of common, even cheap burial vessels, such as black-finished ones, some small red-figured ones, and white lekithoi, or oil flasks, dating to the second half of the 5th century BC. The bodies were all placed in the pit within a day or two and were randomly placed with no layers of soil between them. These factors point to a mass burial and a state of panic, quite possibly due to the plague. The plague also caused religious uncertainty and doubt. Since the disease struck without regard to a person's piety towards the gods, meaning that no matter how much one offered or prayed to the gods, they still got sick, people began to feel abandoned by the gods as there seemed to be no benefit for worshipping them. The temples themselves became sites of great misery, as refugees from the Athenian countryside had been forced to find accommodation inside them. Soon, though, these sacred buildings were filled with the corpses of those who had supplicated themselves there. Some Athenians even pointed to the plague as evidence that the gods favored Sparta, and this was said to be supported by an earlier oracle that Apollo himself, the god of disease and medicine, would fight for Sparta if they fought with all of their might. In addition, the disease initiated a more general lawlessness in the city, because people ceased fearing the social and legal repercussions of breaking the law, since they now felt that they were already living under a death sentence. Essentially, they did what they pleased with no respect for honor, law, or the gods. Likewise, they started spending money indiscriminately, as many felt they would not live long enough to enjoy the fruits of wise investment, while some of the poor unexpectedly became wealthy by inheriting the property of their relatives. On the next episode, we will discuss the wide-reaching repercussions of the plague on Athens, which threw a wrench into the grand defensive strategy that Pericles had envisioned for this war. Demoralized by the plague and the breakdown of their city, and frustrated by being forbidden to march out and offer battle twice now, the Athenians again blamed Pericles for persuading them to go to war and held him responsible for all of their misfortunes. As the domestic pressure was the hottest that it ever was for Pericles, Tragedy struck him in his personal life as many of his closest friends and family members succumbed to the plague, including his children, and ultimately himself. At the same time, the plague severely limited the Athenians' capability to man their triremes. Despite this, though, the Athenians found unlikely and remarkable success on the sea in the northwest, thanks to their brilliant naval commander Formio. Unfortunately for him, he too wouldn't live long enough afterwards. And so in a matter of months, Athens found itself having lost its best statesman and its best naval commander. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 92, The End of an Era, Part 2.